0: Lesson two, the context of the prophet, kings in conflict, the very first verse. Uh, The book of Zephaniah is a minor prophet, uh, the way we categorize it, but it's major in content. And within its message, we're going to find covenantal themes that range from creation to consummation. And it's really best understood when it's interpreted in light of protology, first things, and eschatology, or ultimate things. Themes of creation, we're going to see. Covenant, consummation, they resound all over the book. And when we uncover these themes, and when we explore these themes in the context of a pre-exilic Judah, they haven't gone into exile yet, we're going to find within these three little chapters remarkable insight into one of the most significant themes of Scripture, It's the coming of God, or the day of the Lord. So themes of creation and decreation, of babbled languages and restored, purified language, exodus and redemption, judgment and salvation, all of these themes, like the the great oak that springs from the acorn, are found in seed form. in Zephaniah's description of the day of the Lord, which is gonna bring together Genesis and Revelation, Protology and eschatology. And these expectations are rooted in that framework of the covenants of works and grace. So Zephaniah is going to present snapshots of biblical redemptive history as we unfold its themes and its types and its patterns. Except for the first verse of the book of Zephaniah, the entire book is exclusively poetry, which Zephaniah uses then as a literary device. He's going to deliver oracles, oracles of judgment and woe and praise and salvation, calls to action, calls to repentance. The name Zephaniah means the Lord has protected And his name alone, I think, points to the uh, importance of considering the historical setting of this book because it is, in fact, a time when the children of Israel need a protector. It is in the midst of a looming captivity and judgment. Zephaniah is born in 7th century BC uh, during the reign of King Manasseh of Judah, the most wicked king in the nation's history. He's born during a time of murder, idol worship, capitulation to the pagan nations that are surrounding Israel. In the very first verse, the the prophet traces his lineage back four generations to Hezekiah. and This is a king who has initiated a significant reformation of worship in Israel. Zephaniah 1.1 reads, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, and the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Zephaniah is the only prophet who traces his lineage back four generations. In fact, several of the prophets have no recorded history of their families at all. But his heritage emphasis is intentional. He's going to trace it so far back and that tells us that we need to look back there and see what's happening and he highlights his connection with hezekiah for two reasons one of them is Zephaniah's link to Hezekiah, who's the 13th king of Judah since Solomon, it demonstrates Zephaniah's royal connection. It helps us to understand why he has an influence on Josiah during his reforms. And Zephaniah, as the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, is of the tribe of Judah, but he's also a descendant of the tribe of Levi. Hezekiah's mother, Abijah, the daughter of the high priest Zechariah, and Zephaniah's royal and priestly lineage combined with his prophetic function point forward in three ways to the person and work, the offices of Jesus Christ, as prophet, priest, and king. Zephaniah is uniquely qualified among the prophets to fulfill the role of a covenant enforcer. And that's what the prophets are. At its most basic level, uh, really, the most basic level, The function of a prophet in the Old Testament was to take the covenant of God and prosecute it. He was to remind the people of their sin. He was to offer indictments to those who had violated the law at the same time providing for the promise of future blessings to the faithful. And in ancient Near Eastern uh, treaty documents, emissaries of the suzerain would apply his laws and they would prosecute violators of the law. They would reward those who were obedient to the law. And a lot of the legal terminology of those documents is also seen in the prophetic work. Uh, Prophets would contend. They would deliver lawsuits. The prophets would know. They would experience the hand of Yahweh. There's the idea of the witness of heaven and earth. I call heaven and earth as a witness, legal uh, terminology. And the lawsuit formula can be seen in the model of a summons to the court. We'll see a summons, or at least we'll see the court in session in Zephaniah. The review of God's benevolent actions toward His people. Look at what I've done for you. Accusations, sentencing, a witness clause. In Zephaniah's lawsuit, he employed poetic literary devices, parallelisms, wordplay, repetition, metaphor. The prophets represented a reform movement whose aim it was to reawaken memory of a largely forgotten Sinaitic covenant discovered during the time of Josiah. Their utterances were in the tradition of this covenant made with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, calling them back to obedience to that law. It's the violation of God's covenant stipulations that leads to the pronouncement of the violent sanctions that we're going to see in Zephaniah. So Zephaniah's link to Hezekiah shows just how uniquely he performs this role. But second, Hezekiah was king at the time of the last great reform and hezekiah's reforms parallel the reforms of josiah who's reigning as zephaniah is doing his ministry hezekiah had been the godliest king since david you can read his story in first kings 18 through 20 second chronicles 29 through 31 and he had reigned for 29 years And in the first 14, he had instituted unparalleled reforms, repairing, uh, reopening the temple, uh, reinstituting the Passover, which was never to be stopped, uh, and yet it had been. He reinstitutes it, the reorganization of the priests and Levites. He refuses to capitulate to the Assyrian army, and he refuses to pay tribute to them. And the fact that Zephaniah gives us a four-generation genealogy gives us a really big clue about why the context of his ministry is significant. He wants us to understand his ministry in light of the time in which Judah finds itself. And to understand that, we need to know something about the rise and the fall of the Assyrian Empire to go back now to the time of Hezekiah. At the time of Hezekiah's father Ahaz, Assyria is an empire powerful and to be feared. And in fact, that's the height of Assyrian domination. The largest, the most powerful empire known on earth to that time. Everywhere Assyria marches, she is victorious. Everywhere she goes, she dominates to the point where Assyrians even begin to invade the northern areas of the Egyptian empire. And that world domination comes under the great king Tiglath-Pileser III, who even seizes the throne of Babylonia in 729. And then he makes inroads into Egypt, and he seasons, does, seizes dozens of cities in Israel. And the Assyrians had a policy, and their policy was to deport the best and the brightest, to get them out of that land and bring them into their own land. And so large sections of the populations that they conquered, and that accomplished two things. Number one, they got the best tradesmen and the best ta- most talented people. And number two, it would destabilize the region out of which they took them. It would undermine nationalistic sentiment. And that's exactly what Assyria does. And that's what Assyria does when she takes over the Israeli empire or the Iz- empire of Israel, if you will, in 722. In the southern kingdom, though, King Ahaz, this is Hezekiah's father, places Judah under the domination of the Assyrian Empire. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 16. He's afraid of the king of Damascus. And so he refuses to join an alliance opposing Assyria. Instead, he makes an alliance with Assyria. And he does that by sending a huge gift, Tiglath-Pileser, and Judah basically then becomes a vassal state of Assyria. And this preserves Judah for a while, but almost by necessity, humanly speaking, it causes Judah to descend into a false religion. Because to be a vassal state meant that you needed to acknowledge the gods of the greater empire. Judah has no will of her own. So the pagan practices of Assyria, they become Judas practices. Altars that are built to false gods, that are built in God's own temple, temple prostitution, every matter of false worship is practiced. But when Ahaz dies and Hezekiah comes to the throne, his son in 726, he reigns for 29 years and institutes a program of reform. And it's slow, this program of reform at first. He's kind of testing the waters, as it were. What kind of response am I going to get from Assyria? But when Sargon, the king of Assyria, dies in 704, his son Sennacherib comes to the throne. Hezekiah knows, now's the time to make my move. Assyria begins to weaken. Sargon seems to have died in a battle that was a major defeat for Assyria, and that defeat marks the occasion for several of Assyria's vassal states to begin to rebel. In Babylon, the king of Babylon reestablishes his uh, kingship. Egypt begins to rebel. A coalition begins to be formed by many of the city states along the Mediterranean coast, many of them that are named here in Zephaniah, Philistia, Tyre, Ashkelon. Hezekiah makes a treaty with Egypt, Isaiah 31. So all of a sudden, it's like this 70-pound weakling who starts to feel you know, a renewed sense of bravo because the local bully is fighting off bigger bullies. And Judah's beginning to flex their muscle, puny muscle, but it's there. And so Hezekiah begins. And he begins to tear down pagan altars. He begins to tear down false altars to Yahweh. He takes the brazen serpent of Moses, which they had used for pagan worship, and he breaks it into pieces, 2 Kings 18.4. He begins to repair the temple. But his reforms are incomplete. He doesn't achieve complete independence from Assyria. And the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, manages to get the situation in Babylon under control in 701. And then he invades Judah. And we read about this in Second Kings 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. And it's one of the most remarkable, probably the most well-attested battle in the Bible. 2 Kings 18, Isaiah 36 and 37, 2 Chronicles 32. Hezekiah decides, I can't handle this. And he pays off the Assyrian king by giving him a huge tribute. He takes silver and gold, strips them from the temple and from the palace, and he gives it to Sennacherib. And here's how Sennacherib describes it with the characteristic Exaggerative flair, you know, of, of the victor. As for Hezekiah the Judean, I besieged 46 of his fortified wall cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number, using packed down ramps and applying battery rams, infantry attacks by mines and breaches and siege machines. I conquered them. I took out 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, cattle, camel, sheep without number, and counted them as spoil. He himself I locked up in Jerusalem, his royal city like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthen works. I made it unthinkable for him to exit by the city gate. His cities, which I despoiled, I cut off from his land and I gave it to And then he named some other kings he gave them to. And I diminished his land. I imposed duties and gifts for my lordship upon him. In addition to the former tribute, the yearly payment. He, Hezekiah, was overwhelmed by my awesome splendor of my lordship. And he sent after me by my departure to Nineveh, my royal city. He sent his elite troops, his best soldiers, with 300 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, large blocks of cornelian, beds with ivory, armchairs with ivory, elephant hides, ivory, ebony, boxwood, and on and on and on he goes, daggers and bows and arrows and all this stuff, together with his daughters, his palace women, his male and female singers. He also dispatched his messenger to deliver the tribute and to do obeisance. What happens to the king of Israel? The king of Judah is not victorious. And not surprisingly though all of this doesn't pacify Sennacherib for very long. It's kind of hard to piece together the timetable of 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 32 But it seems as though Sennacherib reconquers Babylonia in 689 and then he sets his sights back on Judah. And Hezekiah sends his servants to appeal to the prophet Isaiah who tells him, 2 Kings 5, or Second Kings 19, 5 through 7, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words which you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him befall by the sword in his own land. And then the Lord miraculously wipes out the Assyrian army. Second Kings 19. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrammelech and Sherazer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esaradon, his son, raised reigned in his place. That's the end. We don't hear. He disappears from history, Sennacherib. And the Assyrian army is irrevocably weakened. Writing a few hundred years later, uh, Herodotus, the the Greek historian of the 5th century, speaks of the great defeat of the Assyrian army. And he writes, A multitude of field mice by night devoured all the quivers and bowstrings of the enemy and all the straps by which they held their shields, so that next morning they commenced their flight and great numbers fell, as they had no arms with which to defend themselves. And then later on in 2 Kings 20, when Hezekiah is stricken with a fatal disease, he appeals to God. He's given 15 years of life, but then he changes, and he succumbs to the perils of pride. And so then when representatives of the next empire, the Babylonians, come calling, what does he do? He opens up the doors of the temple, and he boasts of its riches. And Hezekiah's foolishness, like the foolishness of all parents, wasn't lost on his kids. Because son Manasseh, who's born just three years after Hezekiah is healed, is the longest reigning, the most wicked king ever to reign in Judah. And he initiates the long decline of the kingdom. And this sets the account, sets the stage for Zephaniah's ministry. This is when he's born, during the reign of Manasseh. And by tracing his lineage back to the time of Hezekiah, he's demonstrating how Assyria's political decline and Judah's spiritual decline are setting the stage for God's intervention of cursing and blessing. And when Hezekiah dies, the son Manasseh comes to the throne. He's only twelve, but he reigns a long time. You can read about him in Second Kings twenty-one and second uh, Chronicles thirty-three probably lives from 695 down to 642 or so, but he's an evil king. He rebuilds the pagan altars of just about every sort. He takes his own sons and he offers them up as burnt offerings in Jerusalem. He uses fortune tellers. He uses witchcraft. It seems there's no manner of evil in which he's not engaged enthusiastically. Even human sacrifice and those who wanted to continue in faithfulness to the true God of Israel are persecuted. They're hunted down. They're killed. 2 Kings 21.16 tells us the wicked king Manasseh shed much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, and besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. God warns him to repent, but he doesn't. And so the Lord brings, of all things, the then king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, who binds Manasseh with chains, captures him with hooks, impales him through his flesh. Manasseh cries out to the Lord in repentance. The Lord hears his prayer, restores him to Jerusalem, and he does institute some reforms. He stops a few of the pagan sacrifices. He beefs up the defenses of Jerusalem, but he doesn't restore proper worship. The people still sacrifice in the high places, altars outside of the proper temple altar. And when Manasseh dies, his son Ammon comes to the throne at the age of 22. He reigns two whole years. And he's so wicked, he continues the pagan worship of his father. He's so evil that his servants uh, eventually kill him. And Assyria is weakened even then even more by the extent of her victories, She's weakened. She can't maintain her territories. She's weakened by millions of captives that they had taken, aliens that they brought in that have destroyed, ironically, the national sense of Assyria, and had planted a growing sense of hostility in the heart of the empire as the empire expanded. The extent of the military campaigns had taken their toll. Civil war is tearing at the fabric of the nation. The empire is more and more held together by sheer force, even though the forces are spreading thin. Just like Rome, in a way, would experience in the 4th century. Uh, The Scythians, the Cimmerians, begin to collapse the border of Assyria. The Egyptians, under the first pharaoh of the 26th dynasty, they break free then of the Assyrian yoke. The Medes, the Babylonians, all play a part. And in the same year, 627, so this is just 13 years after Zephaniah's ministry, it helps us see this context of the weakening Assyrian Empire. In the same year, 627, both the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, and Kandalanu, the Assyrian-appointed king of Babylon, die at the same time, in the same year. And this totally destabilizes the empire. At their deaths, the Assyrian Empire falls to pieces, vanishes like an exploding star. And when Ashurbanipal's sons battle for the throne of Assyria, as they're battling to see who's going to be the next king, the Lord uses a nobody, a fellow by the name of Nabopolassar, no royal blood that we know of to And he seizes the opportunity to raise an army from Babylon and attack Assyria and expel them from Akkad, which is just northeast of Babylon. And he proclaims himself king. I want to read the account uh, to you. It's recorded in the Babylonian Chronicle. It sounds like a newspaper, but really it's a series of uh, stone tablets that they uncovered in the 19th century. They were actually sold at a, it was like a flea market or an antique store or something like that. When they brought them to the British Museum, oh wow, look what we have, ancient Babylonian records. here's what it says in the month AR it's like April and May the army of Assyria went down to Akkad in the month of Tishri day 12 when the army of Assyria had marched to Babylon on that day when the Babylonians came out of Babylon they attacked the army of Assyria they inflicted a major defeat on the army of Assyria and plundered them for one year there was no king in the land the month of what would our be our October to November day 26 Nabopolassar ascended the throne in Babylon And I want you to hear Nabopolassar, he writes his own account, which is, of course, similar to Sennacherib's. It's grand. When I was young, although I was a son of a nobody, I constantly sought the sanctuaries of Nabu and Marduk, my lords, Shazu, the Lord who fathoms the hearts of the gods of heavens and the netherworld, who constantly observes the conduct of mankind, perceived my inner thoughts and elevated me, me the servant who is anonymous among the people to a high status in the country in which I was born. He called me to the lordship over the country and the people. He caused a benevolent spirit to walk at my side. He let me succeed in everything I undertook. He caused Nergal, the strongest among the gods, to march at my side. He slew my foes and fell to my enemies. The Assyrians who had ruled Akkad because of divine anger had with his heavy yoke oppressed the inhabitants of the country. I, the weak one, the powerless one who constantly seeks the Lord of Lords with the mighty strength of Nabu and Marduk, my lords, I removed them from Akkad and caused the Babylonians to throw off their yoke. And over the Next 14 years, incessantly, Nabopolassar leads an endless succession of campaigns to conquer Assyria and her capital, Nineveh. And in 612, you know what happens, right? The Babylonians under Nabopolassar, the Medes under Cyrus Xerxes, who had united most of Asia under him, along with a confederation of barbarian tribes, they march in on Nineveh and they destroy her, ruthlessly slaughtering, enslaving, ransacking. And all of this is God moving. Nahum, prophesying against Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, around the same time as Zephaniah, similar context, is prophesying. And he says this, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And it was the bloody city, Nineveh, full of lies and robberies. Nahum writes, There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. A multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Now, that's in 612. Josiah comes to the throne in 640. What's the significance of that? It's just as the Assyrian Empire begins to fall apart. The pagan empire hadn't yet reached its full demise, but her conflicts had weakened her grip on Judah, on this vassal state, permanently weakened. Judah now, for the first time in generations, can in fact function in some ways like an independent nation. Zephaniah tells us to look all the way back to Hezekiah, to his current context. And between Hezekiah and Josiah, the Assyrian empire totters. Its downfall is assured Within a 15 to 20 years or so of Zephaniah's ministry, before Josiah's reign comes to an end in 609, Assyria is destroyed. And the significance of God's working in the destruction of Assyria was that Judah, by default now, of the destruction of the Assyrian empire, is free. They're not bound to apostasy as a means of self-preservation. Josiah the king could institute reforms now. And that's what's happening in the time of the book of Zephaniah. It's a brief window. It's a brief reprieve in Judah's vassalship and enables enough independence to begin a measure of reformation, a reformation that you can read about in 2 Kings 22 and 23. And it also, at the same time though, it shows why the people of Judah felt no urgency to repent. They'd seen the disaster, and they know disaster's coming, but they also, at the moment, everything's fine. There's no oppressor. We're doing pretty well. And this is the context in which Zephaniah's ministry begins. God's timing is always perfect. In Galatians chapter 4, we read that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And what that means is God ordered the events of redemptive history in such a way that everything is perfect for the arrival of God. Things are profound. Theologically prepared, the prophets had laid out all the expectations for the coming of a faithful son, unlike Adam, unlike Israel. Things are doctrinally prepared. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus would proclaim in God's preordained time, Christ comes to provide His children with an eternal inheritance. Things are even politically prepared. The Greek culture, a common language, the Roman Empire, a common political environment. The Jews were tired of being dominated by another empire, and Christ comes. To to proclaim the message of an eternal kingdom. And in ancient Israel, God's timing for the ministry of Zephaniah is perfect. You see, for Judah, even the collapse of a wicked empire, it looked like the world's coming to an end. Now, Syria was a wicked empire, but what do we do now? The question is maybe like ours, you know, how's it going to end? Now that the Assyrian Empire is collapsing, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to Judah? Every religious system has some idea of how the world's going to end. There's only one right answer to that question, and Zephaniah is answering it for us. Every religion has a sense of looking into the future and giving us an answer to, well, how are the good going to get what's coming to them and the bad going to get what's coming to them? How's victory going to be achieved? How will the righteous be awarded and the wicked punished? And the pagan religions of Assyria had an answer, the pagan gods who established their own kingdom and the Israelite culture, so profoundly steeped now in that pagan culture that many of the people of Israel had no idea to where to look for deliverance. Where do we go? The book of the law has been long lost. Many of the people of Judah had forgotten that God had made a promise to the house of David that his throne would be established forever. They didn't know that the kingdom of David would last forever, that this everlasting kingdom would be permanently established and guaranteed by David's greater son. The prophet said there's a day coming, the day of the Lord himself, when there would be a judgment against all of those who wouldn't bow to David's son and a judgment even within Israel, but that the covenant of God, the everlasting covenant that God made meant that he loved his people with a love that would never be extinguished. And because, because of that love, he would again have compassion on his people. He would redeem his people, not for the sake of a country, Israel, but for the sake of his own glory and into this foray of a collapsing empire of the darkness of paganism begins to lift. The king who discovers the law of God and Zephaniah comes and the light of the word shines. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Interesting the way the book starts in that sense. The word came as well, it's an ordinary word, isn't it? It's, it's used all the time. It comes from a verb which means to exist. The word of the Lord exists now. One commentator notes that this verb goes beyond being or existing to include the sense of an active presence. The word of God now begins to act. And there is a promise here that God again will be with his people. God comes and what Zephaniah will do is hear and receive and preach and proclaim the very words of God that come to him. It's the very speech of God himself that we read. It's all about God. The book of Zephaniah begins with the word Yahweh. The word of the lord it ends with the word yahweh the lord saying i will restore your fortunes before your eyes and that's the word we're going to explore in our coming lessons in the middle of a prevailing darkness we're going to find light in a book that is predominantly judgment we're going to see again and again salvation in a book which at first glance seems to concentrate only on the condemnation of sinners we'll see the crowning of our savior and salvation for his people and even in this introduction we see Jesus, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Josiah's son, Jehoiachin are listed again for us. Where? In the genealogy of the great king of Jesus, the goal of the throne of David. And so also the theme of redemptive history is that the world is moving toward the time of the preparation of the coming again of the Word, the true King, the faithful King, the faithful prophet, the faithful priest, the faithful Son, Jesus Christ. And what Zephaniah proclaims is that the judgment of God falls on sinners, but the favor and mercy and grace and salvation of God is bestowed on all of those who will repent. The Israel of God will be restored and will rejoice in the presence of the great king. God's purifying a people for himself who will worship him all over the globe. And those who will see this kingdom, those who inherit these promises of eternal life, are those sinners who will humble themselves and go to the Word made flesh, trust in Christ, and repent of their sin, and receive eternal life. This is Zephaniah's message.